It's Christo.art. Welcome back. In this episode, I'm... You know what? Wait, wait, wait just a sec. This is indeed Christo.art, and I sure do love my bongo intro theme, but somehow it doesn't really fit the piece I'm going to be talking about today in this two-part episode. Something about it gives me the feel of a space where people kind of like having hoot nannies. So I found some music that's a little bit closer to that feeling and my first impression of the piece. Yeah, that, that's it. That's better. Alright, let's go back to this. Welcome back. In this episode, I'm back in Cologne's Museum Ludwig, and I'm looking at a piece I couldn't help but notice, since it hangs in the same space as Yan Peiming's portrait of Mao, and it's nearly as large. I have to admit that it really stood out for me, because my first impression of it was that I disliked it pretty intensely. As I've said, first impressions are pretty valid, of course, but only as first impressions. As I said in my last episode, part two of The Portrait of Mal, they're not necessarily correct or worth holding on to, and by definition they don't qualify as considered opinions, which is what we're after in contemplating images in a museum or gallery. In any case, the stronger they are, those impressions, positive or negative, the more we should value the image that triggered them, not as an object in itself, but as a mirror to some valuable part of ourselves that we've lost track of, something that only our intuition recognizes. And that makes them a very handy key to greater self-knowledge, or maybe I should say a handy shovel to that end, because digging deeper into the thoughts that lie beneath and beyond those shallow first impressions is what our intuition requires of us. And the hard work is really all the digging and thinking which just means it takes real patience to stand there and keep looking at an image and thinking deeply about what we're seeing without even knowing what we should be thinking. Sometimes I think that contemplation is all just a matter of fighting the urge to give up looking and trusting that whatever thoughts come up from within are going to teach us something valuable. You can think of intuition as a metal detector or a Geiger counter. It tells us where to start digging for buried treasure or uranium or even nuclear waste. And unfortunately, it's true that some things are better left buried and undisturbed. But for introverts like me, it's just about impossible to ignore the siren call of intuition, especially where art is concerned. Okay, let's get this party started. So I'm standing in front of another abstract piece that I've thought about quite a bit since looking at Mao. And the only reason I've thought about it is because it's here and because I had looked a little bit closer to it and was repelled by it. I'm still kind of repelled by it. But only for the reason that I don't like the color. It's a color that has a really negative effect on my psyche. It's sort of a brick red with a little bit more yellow in it, a kind of burnt orange, and that 
in the box of Crayolas that one of the colors that I really detested, burnt orange, it had a feeling about it that was really unpleasant. I don't, I don't care how you feel. And that's the deal with color very often, that it's all about the feeling, at least for me, and that's, that's probably true for a lot of INFPs. Really? Well, yeah. Well, for those of you unfamiliar with those initials, INFP is a reference to Jungian typology, as it was elaborated on by the Myers-Briggs mother-daughter team. It's more popularly known as a personality type, but it's actually based on the historic concept of temperament, and temperament corresponds to the ancient theory of the humors, such as sanguine or choleric or even the melancholic, for instance. It's actually a very important concept, but I'm not going to go into that here. I'll leave you a good typology link for further reading in the show notes, and maybe I'll even do a podcast on it at some point. But for now, just let me give you the basics. I stands for introverted, and that's as opposed to E for extroverted. N stands for intuitive, as opposed to S for sensation. And people who classify as sensation types, well, they tend to be more literal-minded than us intuitive types. Sensation types have the attitude associated with Missouri, the self-proclaimed show-me state. The most famous example of an S-type in art was Gustave Courbet. Who's that? Well, he famously said something to the effect that he would only paint an angel if someone could point one out to him on the street. F? That stands for feeling, as opposed to thinking. And we feeling types, we judge things according to how they make us feel. Whereas the thinking types, they prefer to remain unemotional about choices. Think of Mr. Spock as the poster child for this. P stands for perception, and its opposite is J for judgment. Now, the words are actually kind of confusing, but the behavior they drive is easy-peasy to observe. That is to say, P's... Like me, we prefer to keep our options open. We'd just rather not have to make or agree to plans way, way in advance. And that makes J-types think that we're non-committal, even kind of flaky. But you can always recognize a J-type. They're the ones who pull out the calendar on January 1st and they start planning out their year. They also wish everyone else would stick to the plan as well and not be so difficult to pin down. If I've confused you with that little detour into the back roads of Jungian typology, don't worry. I'll get us back on the highway of this burnt orange artwork. It's just that in order to get there, I don't know any shortcuts. So I guess we're going to have to take the scenic route. Just brace yourself for that first part. The ruts are awfully deep. I promise, though, the rest of the ride will be pretty smooth and involve plenty of local color. According to Wikipedia, color psychology is the study of hues as a determinant of human behavior. So you can imagine there are plenty of resources around the web describing how you too can use color psychology to increase the sales of whatever you're out there hawking. All of those websites take a kind of extroverted stance, meaning what's the effect of your color choices on other people. But I haven't seen anything describing color from the perspective of the introvert. How we tend to think about color from the inside out, meaning, why do I choose a particular color in the first place? as an utterly personal choice. 
and not as a means to manipulate or persuade someone else. I don't care how other people feel about a color choice that I make for myself. I'm interested in exploring how I feel about it, what it says to me, what it makes me think of. I'm sure that graphic artists and designers have a great handle on how most people feel about specific colors and color combinations, but I very much doubt that most painters or fine artists choose their colors based on how other people might respond to or think of them. I spent quite a few years reading Carl Jung, and I always felt like I couldn't read him without using colored pencils. Huh? Actually, I started out borrowing Jung's books from the library, but then I realized that because I needed to mark them up, I had to start buying them for myself, which is what I ended up doing. So I'd underline sentences I considered important, and sometimes make little doodles next to the ones that really spoke to me. And I would choose colors to express the different levels of personal connection to the material, almost like a heart or love emoji versus the simple thumbs up or like. Color felt like a kind of glue, so that with it I was cementing, or at least just acknowledging, a fervent bond between myself and what I was reading. That said, with this burnt orange piece on the wall, my first impression was to emotionally distance myself from it, to deny any bond with it. But, you see, hating a color, an artwork, or anything, actually, isn't distancing yourself from it. Just the opposite. And so my intuition was telling me I should carry on and keep digging a little deeper. But this is a big piece. It's not as big as Jan Peming's pieces. It's fairly tall, probably in the realm of like 10 feet tall, 8 feet tall, and it's a square. So I'm not sure what the dimensions are. But it's surrounded by a very specific, simple, but specific wooden frame. And it is all of one color. And I know from having gotten close to it that I think it's something of a, a weaving of sorts or a, a knit. It's like a somebody took a knit blanket and stretched it out as if it were a canvas. So it has a lot of texture to it because it is, in fact, fabric of some sort. So when you're standing far away from it, you get a sense of shadow, shadow and texture, as if it could have been a painting, as if there's a tremendous variance in the, the way the light hits it. So there are shadows everywhere, as if they were brushstrokes. getting up close to it or closer to it because there's issues with guards museum guards naturally but it looks like some kind of interwoven knit of some sort it's like a lock stitch of some kind the kind you do with uh, macrame or i don't know i really don't know what the the process is but it's like wool Well, the material may actually be wool, but I can't help noticing that the chains of yarn, they remind me more of pasta than a sweater or a blanket, since that's what this whole thing kind of looks like, a big stretched out blanket mounted on the wall, like something my mother might have made. And being Italian, she sure made plenty of pasta. 
For the record, having grown up in New York City, the brand name we always had was Ranzoni, and the particular pasta shape was called Fusilli. Ranzoni no longer makes that shape, and what most companies now call Fusilli is really something completely different. Anyway, I really liked Fusilli, but that didn't make me like this piece anymore. Something about those earth tones. I'm just not an earth tones kind of guy. It's yarn, essentially, that's been knitted. The chains of yarn go horizontally. So the shadows are horizontal. Of course, there's, there's also, in between these chain links, there's shadow. But the overall effect is as if someone had... Well, from a distance, somebody had painted this, but up close, obviously, it's a sort of artsy, craftsy kind of piece. Now, I want to get really close to see what's behind this thing in terms of the background of it, but uh, I want to be careful of the guard, so let's just get close. So this museum guard thing, it's a personal semi-peeve. So just indulge me here for a sec. All right, folks. I get it. All of this expensive art has got to be guarded. First of all, against outright vandalism. Like that nutcase who took a hammer to Michelangelo's Pietà back in 1972, for instance. But also against the clumsiness of visitors, especially the ones taking selfies. I think we're all aware that there's a growing list of some very expensive museum selfie bloopers that are showing up on social media and in the news. It's really terrible. So, sure, that's why they got guards. And it's why they have those little strips of tape on the floor, sometimes even little barriers. They're usually about 18 inches out in front of most pieces, and they're just meant to serve as polite reminders of a line you're not supposed to cross. No, 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 it's about everything. So I have to admit, having crossed the line plenty of times, especially with paintings, and not just because I'm mostly nearsighted, I don't touch them, I just need to see them from the same distance as the artist who painted them. One particularly memorable time was in Rome in 2001. I happened to be there while some amazing exhibit of Caravaggio's was going on. I remembered seeing it advertised on the side of a bus, and I immediately knew I had to go. Oh, yeah. So when I saw the title of the exhibit, which essentially came off as, Come and touch some Caravaggios, it made my heart skip a beat. So you just have to know that in the history of Western European painting, Caravaggio is one of the most interesting, innovative, and influential painters who ever lived. You also have to know that there aren't very many Caravaggios left in the world. Outside of Rome, there distributed pretty randomly in cities like Bergamo, Potsdam, and St. Petersburg. Four! No, 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 I didn't mean that St. Pete's. I meant the other one. You know, the other one. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the one. Mm-hmm. Okay. I love you. Oh, boy. Yeah, I love you. Oh, boy. So that was around 20 years ago. But 10 years before that, I'd been told that there were actually fewer than 50 Caravaggios left in the world. 
and that there was only one in the United States, in Kansas City, of all places. No way! Now, it's now known that there are closer to 80 or 90 Caravaggios, and there are about 9 or 10 of them in the U.S., but there still aren't any in Chicago, which is where I was living when I had to decide on a destination for one of the art road trips I loved taking back in the 90s. It was a 4th of July weekend, and the choice was between Kansas City, with its one Caravaggio, and Memphis, with its one and only Graceland. So having to choose between a hallowed shrine to Baroque art and a hallowed shrine to Elvis and Kitsch, I chose Kitsch. And I had a great trip. A few years later, I actually even got to KC and I saw the Caravaggio, but that's another story. Now, one of the things Caravaggio is most famous for is his chiaroscuro. Huh? Which is just the stark contrast between lights and darks that he puts into most of his images. I mean, if you ask me, the guy is actually really famous for painting darkness, since it covers more than half of most of his canvases. Sure, he'll have some subjects wearing a white article of clothing, but every one of his paintings depicts a scene that's taking place either in a very dark room or very late in the day. And if you look at reproductions of these paintings, what you see is just lots and lots of darkness. But you don't really think all that much about it, except to say maybe, oh yeah, that's his chiaroscuro. But really, you know, people don't talk about his shadows so much. Instead, they kind of talk about how his subjects are peasants with dirty fingernails and dirty feet. Ugh! Well then. So what's there to see in a shadow? I mean, when you're looking, you don't really pay so much attention to the shadows, except maybe as a visual device, or even a kind of visual trick. Intellectually, you can understand that all of that darkness makes anything lighter stand out more dramatically. Like stage lighting when they put a spotlight on one single character while everything else is left dark or just barely lit. To be or not to be. That is the question. With okay, is so we no, know the guy is really famous no for this dramatic lighting, but still there's no way you can understand what's so great about it from looking at reproductions. Even in person, looking at the huge paintings hanging in some of the churches around Rome, they're just too far away for you to see any details. And just like the lighting and the compositions, they're really poorly lit. You have to dump some coins in a slot to get a minute's worth of lighting, but the lights might as well have been designed by Caravaggio himself. Can you see it now? Uh, no. Can you turn the lights up, please? Huh? But at this special exhibition, there are all of these very famous and really awesome Caravaggios all gathered in one place. And while none of them were anywhere near as large as those famous altarpieces, they were hung in such a way that you could get really, really close. Okay, so they didn't actually let you touch them. But you could lean in pretty far. But only just so far as I found out, because I was the guy who kept setting off a buzzer every time I leaned in over the waist-high rope they had set up in front of the paintings. And every time I did it, a very pleasant guard reminded me that I was getting too close again. Hey! Hey! Back off! Back off! Hey! Hey! Back off! Hey! Stay back! 
but I'll never forget that one of those times I was looking at this painting that normally hangs in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. It's called The Lute Player. And on one side of the composition, there's a vase of flowers. Some of them have white petals. And while I was looking at the detail of some of those petals, I couldn't help but notice that the darkness between them, the dark background that made them pop, it wasn't black, and it wasn't some dark, muddy brown, the way it looks in the reproductions. And it wasn't just some anonymous shadow or dark generic fill-in to make the light stand out. It was alive, with color. Dark ones, to be sure, but unbelievably complex and alive. Hey, hey, not like that. He didn't paint a barn. How about some greenery, huh? Okay, yeah, yeah, that, that's more like it. Yeah. But that's more like morning. How about, like, something night-like evening? Yeah. That's it. Peepers. Spring peepers. Oh. I love them. If I could describe the experience, I'd say it was like opening up an old wooden box in some poorly lit, stuffy attic and finding it filled with emeralds and rubies and garnets. It made me gasp. Or in the words of my all-time favorite art critic, John Berger, he said, Occasionally, there's a vision which makes us both gasp. Gasp as one does before revelation. Ah! So normally there's no way to get up close and personal with those amazing images. But there I was. I was leaning in and all of a sudden seeing. Really, really seeing what was in all of that seemingly anonymous darkness he covers more than half of his canvases with. So it turns out that getting up close is the only way to see deeply into and understand the power of what he's most famous for, his chiaroscuro. And so for the first and only time in my life, I got to see the amazing complexity that his scuro really, really is. And just seeing and recognizing that was one of those ultra-miraculous moments that looking at art can bring. It gives you an emotional jolt. It can fill up your whole chest, and not with pride, but something else. Something I don't even have words for. I just... I just... It's all complicated. You see, this is amazing, because if I hadn't started talking about museum guards, I never would have remembered that moment. And that's what intuition does for you. Right here and now, it brought back that experience. It brought back that experience and the way I felt when I saw the breathtaking complexity of Caravaggio's darkness. The feeling was like looking at what it means to be completely yourself. Seriously, it was like a feeling of absolution for all sins and shortcomings. A kind of benediction. Okay, I'll even call it a religious experience. And this wasn't even one of the religious paintings. Let's just say I was deeply moved. Kind of like the way you sometimes felt as a kid 
when all was right with the world, with your world, when you were more than totally happy, which is something that happens way too infrequently as an adult. What's weird and maybe a little sad is that while you never forget experiences like that, it's still one of those memories you tend to forget about. They kind of sit in the back of your consciousness closet until you have a reason to come across them again. Just like now, when I just remembered it for the sake of this podcast and through the most peculiar of memory prompts, museum guards. Roger that. Anyway, there I was. I kept leaning in closer to those Caravaggios, and I kept setting off alarms. But the guard who kept having to warn me off, he never gave me a hard time. He was really, really kind and very gentle about it. Kind of like he understood. Yes, sir. And unfortunately, that experience was different from the one I had in this museum, the Ludwig. Hmm. A guard warned me off getting vaguely close to their one large Rothko. I had been trying to get close enough to really see what's in Rothko's amazing color fields. And considering what you can find in Caravaggio's incredible shadows, maybe it's possible to see something very similar in Rothko. I wasn't thinking about Caravaggio at the time. I was just looking with as open a mind as possible. I was hoping to see just why I love Rothko's work, which I do. But before I could get close enough to see anything and think it through, I was just warned off. Very politely, but very emphatically. And I have to admit that it pissed me off so badly I couldn't think straight or contemplate what little I did see. So I turned right around and I walked right out of the gallery space. Of course, I recognized that I was only having a kind of silent hissy fit. I was acting out in some stupid, passive-aggressive way, but that was better than trying to argue with the guard. Not only because my German is so bad, or even because she was only doing her job, but very often museum cards must think I'm some kind of deranged character, if only because, unlike the vast majority of museum visitors, I actually stand in front of a painting and look at it longer than the average 27 seconds. That's something I spoke about in episode one when I introduced this Christo.art podcast. That 27 seconds, you know, it's the going rate. It's in the culture of museum visitors. I mean, when you see everybody else spending so little time looking at a painting, you just naturally feel self-conscious, conspicuous, even a little vulnerable if you don't act the same way. And that's what guards are used to seeing. It's what they can understand as appropriate museum behavior. Anything else, I think, makes them suspicious and antsy. Who knows, maybe even a little angry. Kind of like having someone stare at them. Stop it, 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 stop it! Long before selfie clumsiness became a commonplace in museums, I'd always find guards shadowing me if only because they were and still are so unused to seeing people actually spend time looking at a painting. So while I'm used to guards acting suspicious of me, it still feels annoying. And feeling annoyed makes it that much harder to make space between my ears to think about the art. For the record, I never touch the art. What never? No, never. What never? Well, hardly ever. Okay, so I did once actually touch one of Joseph Boy's felt suits. Hey, art's my religion, okay? I swear, I had actually been thinking of Matthew 
Chapter 9, verse 20 to 22. Okay, so I didn't know chapter and verse, or even remember the whole story, which actually involves a gynecologic problem. And that in itself is a pretty wild synchronicity, considering my professional life as a gynecologist before diving headfirst into art. It's just that standing in front of that Joseph Boy's piece, I remembered some biblical incident involving someone touching the hem of Christ's garment and wanting to be healed. So I thought I'd take a wild leap of faith in art and do one of those crazy, bold actions that may draw some attention but are really only meant to honor our dreams, our synchronicities, and our intuition in general. And because of that mostly unwanted attention, those are actions that we introverts, we usually shy away from doing. Now, I also did get warned off of getting too close to Yan Ping's portrait of Mao, but that was because my camera bag was dangling dangerously close to the painting, and the guard was perfectly right in pointing out to me that I could probably get what I wanted by zooming in instead of leaning in. But it's funny to think I should get so worked up about museum guards as I did with that Rothko guard. I recently read a short rant by none other than John Berger, who in his book, Bento's Sketchbook, let us all know that he was infuriated enough by the intransigence of a museum guard to actually drop an F-bomb. So, if John Berger can have a hissy fit, well, so can I. All right, rant over. Enough rants. Thank you. And I'm looking, but I don't quite, I can't quite tell. There's one space here where it seems to have been stretched a little bit. It was probably not meant to be. Although you'd suspect that when this thing was handled, it was probably fingered at some point, uh, maybe accidentally. And so there's a little bit of a stretch between some of these, these things. And it looks like plain old canvas stretched behind it, which is like my guess. It could be wood, but I don't think so because that would probably make it really heavy. So this is another one of those pieces I would say, who the hell would want this in their living room? To me, it seems like the kind of art you would buy at Pier 1 or something, or the whatever those places are. It's decorative, but it's not meant to be. It has a feeling like the decorative business. The sides, interestingly enough, are not covered. So this yarn is stretched around the frame, probably around a framed canvas. And the frame, the wooden frame that's placed around it is this blonde wood, kind of sort of tasteful blonde wood, simply planed, carved, whatever. And it just has a feeling of like a 60s, or no, it's more 70s to me, a 70s decorative piece that would have hung in somebody's room who likes that color. But it's a color I just can't take. And yet it has a depth to it that doesn't necessarily draw me in, but it beckons like a question, like saying, okay, so what do you think? What do you think you're seeing? What do you, what is this bringing up in you? Well, those are questions I'm going to answer in part two of this episode. 
For now, just let me say that even though my initial impression was to dislike this piece, I'm really grateful to it, and to the artist, for reminding me of that Caravaggio experience. But that was an indirect memory prompt, not something entirely intrinsic to the piece itself. Chances are, I'd eventually have remembered that miraculous moment in Rome without ever looking at that burnt orange blanket on the wall. But in the weeks and months that followed this visit, as I continued to think about what this piece of fiber art might have to say for itself, not only to me, but to any of us willing to pay some close attention to it, it did speak. And it said something so surprising and so important, I was really impressed. It was something that even made that Caravaggio reference less random. And what it said not only makes this an extraordinary work of art, but one I'll be very happy to visit over and over in the coming years. So that's what I'll be talking about in part two of this episode. The things that make this an extraordinary work of art. In the meantime, check out my website for the show notes and transcripts of this episode. You know, Christo.art forward slash podcast, K-R-I-S-T-O dot A-R-T. Thanks for listening, and don't forget that while art is for everybody, you have to keep looking for yourself. That's how you personalize any work of art and make it your own. I guess it's kind of like voting. Maybe you don't feel so confident that your vote counts, but I can tell you for sure that every minute you spend looking at and thinking about art makes a huge difference to your psyche your intuition, and your life. Yeah, I know, I know, that sounds a little cheesy, but it's something I truly believe. Give it a try for yourself. Ciao a tutti!